The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Dr. Anna Usum, uh, author of, she's a psychiatrist, and author of Fulfilled, How the Science of Spirituality Can Help You Live a Happier, More Meaningful Life. Are you living the life you thought you always wanted, but feel that something is still missing? Psychiatrist Anna Usum knows just how you feel. Not only has she struggled with these feelings herself, but she's also worked with patients upon patients who have expressed the same bewildering concern. They have everything they've always wanted, and yet deep down, they don't feel fulfilled. Dr. Usum spent more than 15 years studying and conducting research and came to a startling conclusion. This lingering feeling of dissatisfaction coincides with spiritual neglect. Dr. Usum is a Stanford and Yale-educated board-certified psychiatrist and has over 50 pu- publications. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here today. Uh, Dr. Anna. Thanks so much, Catherine. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I guess my first question is, how did you come to that conclusion? So after 15 years of studying and doing all this research and coming to the conclusion that dissatisfaction, your own dissatisfaction, that with your clients as well or your patients, coincides with spiritual neglect, what was the process? How did you come to this conclusion? Right. Well, it all really started with my own personal experience of experiencing my dark night of the soul. I um, was going along doing everything that I felt that I needed to be doing. I'd finished my um, medical schooling, my undergraduate, I was doing my residency, and then suddenly a number of things happened in my life which brought me into a very, very dark place. First, this man that I'd been dating for a long time, I realized was never going to be emotionally available to me in the way that I had hoped. And at the same time, I was in academic trouble in my residency for the first time. And the coalescence of those two things um, brought on these feelings of sadness and feeling like a failure and feeling like everything is wrong and not really knowing, you know, how to pull myself out of it. And here I was as a psychiatrist with all these healing tools under my belt, and I couldn't even pull myself out of my own darkness. And that's where I realized that something was missing, and if I couldn't heal myself, how was I going to heal all the patients that I'm being trained to heal? And that's when I uh, went on my spiritual journey and started looking for healing in other places. And I learned about meditation in Thailand, and I learned about uh, 
Kabbalah in Israel. And in New York City, I started working with shaman in South Africa and South America and started learning about all these different modalities and ways of looking at the world and healing that I'd never been exposed to in my own training. These age-old principles of Eastern philosophy and otherwise that really help people heal in a profound, real way that Western medicine either hasn't studied or hasn't fully acknowledged. And as I did that, my own darkness started to lift. And then eventually I started integrating this work into my own work with patients. And that ultimately, 10 years later, led me to write this book. But Anna, I, I'm thinking about, you know, spirituality has this sort of, uh, you know, people, especially in Western medicine, and I would imagine in the institutions that you studied at, here you are, you know, at uh, Yale and Stanford, uh, it's, you know, by most psychiatrists, and I think you have that as part of your statistics, you know, 10% of them think, you know, it's, a, I don't want to say voodoo, but something that's not necessary. So, I mean, that's a dramatic leap for someone like you and your training and the people that you're associated with and your colleagues. Um, and pretty amazing that you would do that and travel around the world, you know, to gain this information about spirituality. Um, what and 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 still today, um, you know, you're practicing spirituality. I guess you combine spirituality with Western medicine, right? When you do it with, with yeah, your patients, precisely. Yeah. Yes, and Catherine, you're exactly right in that the two are very disparate, and many people in my field, it's hard for them to understand the spiritual modes of healing and how that actually works for, you know, applying it to the life of patients and to healing processes. And the reason is because the currency of Western medicine is science and double-blind controlled trials, scientific experiments, and everything is observable and reproducible and testable, and that's how science works. And this is in contrast to spirituality, which is often very personal and subjective and difficult to repeat and not necessarily subject to experimentation. And there's this dichotomy that has existed way back since the days of Freud and even before that in my profession. And that's why what I'm trying to do with my book and in my practice is actually integrate these two often disparate worlds. So, okay, you're doing that in your practice. What kind of patients, what kind of, I guess, what kind of diagnoses do they have? Who are you working with? I mean, as I understand, I mean, from your book, there's just a whole variety of patients that you're combining the spirituality and, and Western medicine, shall we say. And, like, give us an example. Let's say you have a patient who's bipolar. What do you do? What would be, you know, I've been in therapy, I've, but mine's always been very traditional kinds of therapy. And, you know, as a social worker, um, I think obviously it's important that you do go into therapy and have an understanding what it's all about, but very, very traditional. So what would you do that's different, let's say, with a bipolar patient? Right, yeah. So first and foremost, you know, still as a psychiatrist, I always do a medical evaluation first. And does this patient need medications? How bad is the bipolar syndrome? Do they have psychotic features? Are they acutely manic? Are they a danger to themselves or others? That is the first step no matter what. Always trying to understand what's going on from a medical model and then stabilizing the patient depending. Now, if it's severe bipolar, usually medications are necessary. If it's something that's milder and more, you know, representative of, you know, personality issues like a bipolar 2, depending on the gravity of the symptoms, the patient may have a reasonable choice. Do they want to do medications? Do they want to do more therapy and see where, you know, we go? Um, do they want to invoke more of a spiritual approach? The spirituality always comes 
secondary to the medical evaluation. And really what that entails is helping people cultivate their authenticity to understand and really reconnect with their soul and understand this concept of soul correction that I talk about in my book. And if they are open to it, connecting to part of something greater. So how do you do that? I mean, like, really take it step by step. Uh, I mean, I that is the goal, and that would be the goal with, 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 with your patients. But how do you do that? What's the process? Right, yeah. So when a patient comes in, first and foremost, I need to understand what's going on, what makes them tick, what's the source of their pain, what's the source of their joy, what has brought them in to see me on this particular day. And is it something for which medication is necessary? And is it something the patient would like medication for? And is there, you know, a reasonable choice here? And I have a lot of patients, you know, who come in wanting meds, a lot of patients who want nothing at all to do with medications. And usually we, in that case, you know, unless it's medically indicated that they be on medication, in that case we do more of a psychological and spiritual approach. And then it's really trying to understand those three things, authenticity, soul correction, and part of something greater. So for authenticity, it's about understanding who is this person at their core, separate from the expectations of all others? Who are they, and what is it that they've been put on this world to do? And it means starting to be more honest with oneself, starting to be more honest with the people in your life, starting to embrace your own shadow side, which is that dark part of us that we often push away and disavow, and really starting to identify what am I supposed to be doing in this world? What is the contribution I meant to make? For the soul correction part, which is the second part, it's about identifying what are those self-destructive patterns that I have come into this world to correct. Everybody has something, and for everybody, it's something different. And in my book, I talk about four of the main soul corrections, which is harnessing your personal power, transforming fear, releasing addictions, and improving your relationships. And then finally, the third part, part of something greater, it's really helping people to get a sense of how they're a part of a much, much greater whole. And that could mean so many different things to different people. For some people, connecting to part of something greater means connecting to God. For other people who are atheists, they consider themselves to still be very spiritual people, and instead of God, to them it's connecting to the universe or to Mother Nature or a shared global purpose or even to positive humanistic values that are consistent with you know, interconnectedness like love and unity and perseverance and trust and hope and then helping people to live in accordance with that. And Anna, so I assume you, uh, you've been doing this now for how many years? And, and like, I mean, do you have, I guess, if you documented your patients, for instance, in terms of how well they do over time, do they do much better um, in terms of getting healthy, mental health, than those patients who just, uh, you know, are uh, undergo like traditional Western psychiatry, I guess you would say, therapy? Yeah, yeah. So in my practice and in my experience, indeed, the combination of the two, a medical approach together with a spiritual approach, leads to more thorough and faster healing than either approach alone. And that being said, I want to be clear that, you know, in my practice, there's many people who are non-believers 
who are atheists, who, and some don't really even want a spiritual approach, and that's okay, too. I think the core, really, of my approach is to recognize the uniqueness of each human being and to help them cultivate their authenticity and connect to their own soul. And for people who believe in something greater, we enable them to connect to that. And we use that for healing, and indeed the outcomes, in my experience, have indeed been better than without that. So what about the, you know, your colleagues, for instance, I think I mentioned that just a few minutes ago about, you know, 10, I think you had the statistic that, you know, 10% of psychiatrists feel that, you know, spiritual, only 10% feel that spirituality is important in their practices, whereas, and here's another statistic, that 65% of patients who have dep- suffer from depression, anxiety, and other psychiatric conditions indicate that they want spirituality in their in their uh, uh, treatment. There's a big disparity, I guess, isn't there, between yes. the professional and the patient? Yeah. Yes, precisely, precisely, very much so. And I think that this is actually one of the problems right now with the traditional psychiatric model in that it really doesn't, you know, incorporate a spiritual perspective as much as it could and should. And, you know, as evidenced by statistics like that, we're really just not trained that way. And part of that is because it's really hard to scientifically validate these sorts of experiences and the efficacy of a spiritual treatment. You know, that being said, for my own book, I have had two former presidents of the American Psychiatric Association endorse the book. So even in my profession, there's people coming around and really believing and validating the importance of this approach. Yeah, I think one of the other things, validating, obviously, that's important for people to come to believe that spirituality actually works. And I'm kind of one of those non-believers because I've always sort of thought of spirituality as, well, you know, it's you have to believe in God. And if you're an, you know, you have to be a believer, you have to be a religious person. But, you know, as we're talking, I see you don't necessarily. You may believe in a higher power and it may be nature, not necessarily God. Um, so there's a lot of confusion about spirituality, hence I guess that's why you wrote the book, um, but a lot that, the, you know, that I'll speak for myself, even as a social worker, that I really didn't understand, I guess. And um, one of the studies that you point out is that cancer patients do well or do much better, if, even if their diagnosis is maybe dire, they, st- they do better in treatment if they have counseling or they're involved in, in counseling that involves, you know, this, the concept of spirituality may be combined with, obviously, Western techniques. Right, right. And I think what you're pointing to is a very, very important point in that, you know, there are actually two places in medicine where the standard medical approach to treatment actually involves a spiritually-based model. One of them is with addiction, so the AA model, which is a God-based, or they have agnostic AA, but it's a spiritually-based model. And the second is actually in hospice care, people who are confronting death. A spiritually-based model is the medical standard of care in that case. And those are right now the only two places in medicine where that's the case. So with cancer patients, certainly not all cancer diagnoses are dire or will lead to death, but often a cancer diagnosis leads patients to evaluate their life in a different way and to start to confront death in a different way. And when confronting death, for a lot of people, that actually leads to a spiritual awakening. And that doesn't necessarily mean belief in God, but it means starting to live life a little bit different, differently and starting to 
connect and see the role that people play and their interconnectedness with others. And don't you think it's also a uh, it's a cultural thing? I mean, in the Very United States, so. yeah. So and, and right. like. Yeah, I mean, you had to go yeah. to, you went to Thailand, you went around the world, you went to countries where um, spirituality is practiced, it's incorporated into their whole culture, which it's not here in the United States. We have that very scientific mentality, you know, prove it. You need to prove it scientifically, otherwise, you know, I don't want to hear about it. Precisely right. What we consider complementary and alternative care, where spirituality would often fit, is in other cultures a regular standard of the care. In Eastern philosophy, ideas of spirituality, like traditional Chinese medicine, have been incorporated for hundreds and thousands of years. And it's in a way we're just starting to scientifically understand and validate some of those philosophies. Another, you talk about depression in the elderly. Let's talk about that because it seems to be, you know, incorporating spirituality into their uh, treatment uh, really has positive effects. And there have been studies uh, that have shown this to be true. Yeah. Yes, for numerous reasons. Um, And, you know, the reasons they include, number one, often being part of a community of like-minded individuals, having life-affirming beliefs that certain spiritual traditions could give, being able to have some sort of explanation and give meaning to their pain and suffering, sometimes having explanations of an afterlife. And I think the combination of all those things in terms of community and meaning and explanations and all of that really together helps people to heal and to, you know, have a higher quality of life. Now, your book specifically, I mean, is very... Uh, what's in court, what is included, because we want to talk about some of these very specific, you actually have exercises, guided meditations, you have the research, the success stories. Uh, let's talk about some of those, like specifically what's in the book, what are we going to get from the book, from your sure, book? Yes. Yeah. yes, and that's what the book hopes to provide. It provides, you know, obviously I work with a certain number of patients, but for people with whom I can't work one-on-one, I certainly want to give them as many exercises to be able to do this work on their own because it is something that is, you know, applicable to anybody's life, really. So, indeed, there's meditations to help people get more in touch with themselves and often to open their own hearts, connect more to the love within themselves, to be able to calm anxiety responses. There's also reflective exercises to help people look within and ask themselves certain questions that will enable them to be more honest with themselves and hopefully clear up some self-defeating patterns and unblock some other blockages. And then there's also some other things that help people with more transcendent processes, like the idea of incubating your dreams or you know, placing a, almost a hypnotic suggestion into your mind prior to going to sleep in order to give you clarity or an answer to a difficult personal or professional question or problem in your life upon awakening. So there's a so number how do you do that? How do you, and I want to stop you there, how do you incubate your dreams? Let's say there's something bothering you, say, like at work, you're concerned about, uh, you know, you might maybe losing your job. So then, and obviously you're anxious and stressed out about that. So then what do you do? at night before you go to bed, because this is going to keep you up. You're going to be thinking about this the whole time. How do, what do you do? Right, yeah. So incubating your dreams is based on the process, on the idea that we have these unconscious processes, which you can think of as really your soul, doing work for us while we're asleep, 
and that could guide us and help us gain clarity about those things about which we have confusion. And it's been shown, um, there's uh, Deidre Barrett, a uh, researcher, a sleep researcher at Harvard University, has done work around this. It's been shown that if you ask for guidance, Prior to going to sleep, you can actually wake up with guidance, clarity, and often something that you haven't thought about, like thinking about things in a new way upon awakening. So the way that you incubate your dream is you the last thought you think before you go to bed is, upon awakening, I'm going to have clarity about this question, or I'm going to have a guidance about this problem in my life. And then you believe wholeheartedly to the degree that you're able that you're going to wake up with that clarity. Now, upon awakening, it's very important that you have a notepad by your bed, and the very first thing that you do is you write down everything that you could remember in your dream. Sometimes the guidance will come to you immediately. The dream will be very clear. But sometimes you might have to look back a little bit later to really make sense of it. And sometimes you might have to do it for a few nights in a row to get that clarity. But it's interesting. It's such a simple process, but it's something that's been used by so many different traditions and people for many, many centuries and generations. What do you say to people who say, I don't have time to do this. I can't do guided meditations. I can't be writing down my dreams. I can't be, it, it, it's, it takes too much time. Um, does it take a lot of time? Uh, or is it something that is easily incorporated, incorporated into our daily routine? Yeah, and I, I say to people that, you know, no doubt that they're very busy, but really it's the baby steps. It's starting with five minutes a day and seeing if that makes a difference. And if it does, you can increase it to six minutes a day, ten minutes a day, and really to make it an evidence-based process for them. If it's not working for them, don't waste your time. We're all busy, of course. But really to give it, you know, five minutes a day for a week and see if it makes a difference. Well, in your book also, and we, I guess maybe we touched on it, but you have, you know, success stories, like uh, inspiring success stories. So since, you know, we only have a few minutes less, le- left, let's talk about some of the specific success stories that you've had with your patients. Absolutely, yes. I mean, I, I'll tell you, you know, some of the stories are from my own patients and some of the stories are from people who I have met in my travels that have been so inspiring to me and inspire the way I run my practice. I'll actually tell you about one of those, and that's a man named Jean-Baptiste who I met in Rwanda. Jean-Baptiste runs the Forgiveness Project in Rwanda, and he's a man who, when there was the genocide in 1994, his own mother was killed by one of his neighbors. And just to put it into context, this neighbor was one of the little boys in the neighborhood for whom his mother cooked food almost every day. So the mother would feed everybody. And this boy, he was basically faced with kill or be killed, and he chose to kill because his own life was at stake. So this man was in jail now for many years, and Jean Baptiste understandably harbored so much hatred and anger and rage at this man who killed his own mother. But being head of the Forgiveness Project and realizing how much energy this hatred that he had in his heart was causing him, he decided one day that he's going to forgive this man. And it was the most difficult thing he's ever done. He went to the jail, and the man thought that he was, gonna, he was there to kill him. And that would be a reasonable assumption given what happened. But that's not what happened, and Jean-Baptiste actually forgave this man who killed his own mother. And he said it was the most liberating day in his life. 
And the reason I share this story is because I actually use this story with many of my patients to show the capacity of the human spirit to forgive, to overcome, and to surpass even the most difficult challenges, especially those things we harbor in our heart that we think we could never forgive, we can never overcome. But John Baptiste is an example that, yes, you can. That's a great example, and I, I, it's, it's, I, I mean, picturing it, it would, it would seem to be. So, I mean, obviously, to most of us, it would be something that one could never forgive. Um, so, um, quickly, do you have another? Uh, maybe after that one, everything pales. But uh, uh, one more example, perhaps you could give us in terms of, of uh, helping someone to overcome um, whatever the, the the issue was that either your patient or someone else. Absolutely, yes. So something that I work with a lot of patients on is harnessing personal power. And one of the ways of harnessing personal power is relinquishing victim mentality. So many of us see ourselves as victims of things that happen to us, either of a difficult childhood or of somebody harming us or not treating us this way. Or, and so we blame others and thereby victimize ourselves. And with so many patients... I've seen people make such radical and dramatic changes in their life by shifting from victim mentality, and often with victim mentality, there comes entitlement because the victim always has a lot of righteous indignation. And I'm thinking about a patient I am currently treating who has moved so far in her own life by virtue of being able to leave behind the entitlement that, you know, she's been, that's really been passed down to her, unfortunately, by family, by, you know, people who have had this own mentality. She decided it's not something she wanted to hold on to anymore. And after a lot of work on herself, really relinquished her victim mentality and chose to start living a totally different life. That was, for her, a step in harnessing her personal power, overcoming her soul correction, and really owning her authenticity, finally figuring out who she really was. Two great examples, because I think those are the two big ones, forgiveness and the victim mentality. So I'm glad you shared those with us. We only have one minute less left, so I want to read the title of the book again, Fulfilled, How the Science of Spirituality Can Help You Live a Happier, More Meaningful Life, Dr. Anna Yassine, MD. Uh, great book. I mean, we covered some of it, but there's lots more. So give us the website that we can go to. You can buy it on Amazon bookstores everywhere, but also a website for, the, for you and for uh, more information about the book. Absolutely. It's uh, com, and that's spelled A-N-N-A-Y as in yoga, U-S as in Sam, I-M as in Mary. Great. Thanks so much for being here today. Thank you, Catherine. I'm Catherine Sox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Sox Show. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Become a member of VoiceAmerica.com. It's easy and best of all, it's free. Start out by going to our homepage or any of our channels and click register at the top. Once you've created an account and signed in, you can create your own custom library, opt into our newsletter, search by show, host, guest, or topic of interest, or browse millions of hours of content across all of our Voice America radio channels. Membership gets you more. Visit voiceamerica.com today to get started and tailor the listening experience to your taste.
The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Catherine Perlman, LCSW, Ph.D., leading parenting expert and author of Ignore It, How Selectively Looking the Other Way Can Decrease Behavioral Problems and Increase Parenting Satisfaction. With all the whining, complaining, begging, and negotiating, parenting can seem more like a chore than a pleasure. Dr. Catherine Perlman, syndicated columnist and one of America's leading parenting experts, has a simple yet revolutionary solution, Ignore It. Combining highly effective strategies with time-tested approaches, Dr. Perlman teaches parents when to selectively look the other way to withdraw reinforcement for undesirable behaviors. She's featured in Parenting Magazine, Men's Health, and the Huffington Post. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here. Thanks for having me. Well, as the parent of three boys, uh, and I'm looking at your book and thinking, ignore it. How do you ignore it? That's a difficult thing to ignore, the, the whining and the negotiating, as you say, and the complaining. Because kind of in, this sort of an instinctual, I don't know if it's a parenting thing, like you want to be attentive to it, you want to respond to it, you want to do something about it. So this is kind of a revolutionary kind of way of looking at parenting. <laughs> um, how do we ignore it? 
Well, it's actually really hard. So a lot of times people say, oh, ignore it. That sounds so simple. It's actually much harder than responding because as you yeah. say, we're human beings. It's instinctual for our, when somebody calls us a name or is pushing our buttons for us to respond. Um, but the problem is that every time we do respond, kids learn that their behavior, their whining and tantruming and negotiating, it's all very effective in getting them what they want. So even sometimes if they don't get the first thing that they want, which is an extra TV show or a cookie, they get your attention and sometimes or a rise out of you, and that's enough of a motivator to continue on. And also, maybe they don't get what they want nine times out of ten, but they know maybe the tenth time they're going to get that, you know, drink at Starbucks or whatever it may be. So they, they learn that this behavior is effective, even if it's not all the time, and they continue with it. So I try and teach parents that, well, even though it's against your instinct, what you're doing is actually continuing the behavior. So the best thing to do is to ignore it. So kid says, can I have one more show? And you say no. And they say why? You say bedtime. That's it. Nothing more has to happen. Anything there on is just engaging in a battle of wills. So I just turn around, ignore it, and the kid realizes, I guess, that conversation's over. Yeah. Also, I would, would you start this like, uh, well, what, at one or one? I mean, you start right from the very beginning. I mean, when the, you know, or one and a half or, or what? Because, you know, kids are different at different stages. I mean, developmentally, there's different issues, I guess. But if you start at the beginning, you know, when they're, what, babies, like toddlers, so I say toddlerhood, like, so around two years old is the right time for you to begin ignoring. I mean, honestly, up through the first year, kids need all of our attention, right? They have very specific needs that need to be met in a very quick amount of time in order for them to develop their secure attachment, and we should not be ignoring them. But as they get older, and truthfully, we're not really ignoring them, but as they get older, their behaviors, their tantruming, their um, frustration, their pushing our buttons, that really intensifies around two. And so then we can start ignoring them. And I just want to make it clear. I never think you should really be ignoring your kids. It's selective ignoring. So I'm listening. I'm paying attention to my kid. And as soon as that unpleasant behavior stops, I'm reengaging right away. So as soon as they stop begging for something or whining or complaining, like the moment it's done, I'm reengaging and seeing what they want to do in the afternoon. Well, it's interesting. It, when I in, in looking at your, at your book, I always think of it, this is something that my mother told me. She was a social is a social worker, and uh, it sort of goes along with your, what you're saying in the book. This is a personal story, but I was. She said I was uh, sitting at the table, and she gave me I don't know how old I was, say four or five years old, and and served me or gave me dinner, put dinner, and I said uh, I looked at the dinner and said, you know, I, I I'm not eating this for you. And she said, well, you don't have to eat this for me. And that was the end of it, right? I mean, I think that's it. Yeah. You know, and, and I think sometimes, especially with eating, and I think you do talk about it in the book, eating is like one of the big issues that are around parenting, you know, forcing kids to eat, you know, their vegetables or forcing them to drink their milk and they don't want to do it. And so all sorts of stuff begins to happen, doesn't it? In terms of misbehavior, relationship with parents, all around food. Oh, mealtimes are a real struggle for parents because, I mean, there are a few things as parents that we feel like we must do for our kids. We must feed them good meals. We must get food into them. That's like one of our requirements. And so the problem is that we can't actually make kids eat. And the kids, even at a very young age, they pick up on that. So this is a situation that is rife with, you know, potential for power struggles because a parent cares deeply about what a kid eats and the kid has all the power in this situation. And so I've seen it in 
so many homes where every meal is a struggle. Can I just have one carrot? Why do I have to have this meatloaf? Why you said I could have pasta? I'm not going to eat this. And parents are showing how much they care. And I think what your mother did that was so great is she said, I don't care. Basically, she said, it's up to you. And then the power struggle's over. And that's what I tell parents. Look, the kid's going to eat or is not going to eat. Don't provide 15 meals. Don't give an alternative. Don't negotiate. Provide something that you know your kid will eat, a couple of extra things that you'd like your kid to try and eat. If they do, great. If they don't, they don't. But the more you push and the more you care, the more the kid is going to back off and say, like, I'm not eating that. And also, I can't tell you how many times parents struggle at the dinner table. The kid eats nothing. And an hour later, the kid is hungry and snacks are coming. So why would a kid eat at dinner when they know, you know, cheese sticks and apples and whatever snacks are coming, you know, an hour or two later? So I really encourage parents to, you know, if a kid misses a meal, they're going to eat a lot the next morning. You know, it's not a tragedy. A kid will realize, I'm hungry, I want to eat this food, as long as there's no power struggle and they're not not eating to spite you. If they realize that it's not an issue for you, they'll decide what they want to eat and when. Power struggle. That's what it's all about. Okay, that has to do, obviously. So we're talking about the eating issue. Where did the other like major power struggles come up between come with parents and children? Where are some of the other areas? Yeah. Well, the teenager years are filled with a lot of power struggles and, and similar to the toddler years in, in toddlerhood and when you're a teenager you think you have the ability to do more than you can. You know, you desire to be more independent than you actually have the ability to do. And so there's a, a natural struggle there. Like, I want to do this myself. No, you can't do this. So there's that natural power struggle. And then also parents really start to want to have kids participate more in household chores. Um, doing homework is often a power struggle. Anything that the parent actually really cares about, that the kid sees that you care about, they're going to have a power struggle over. And, okay, let's be specific. So then what do you do? The kid doesn't want to do his homework. Um, refuse, you know, so I'm not going to do my homework. And, and you get it, or I'm, I'm going to do it in an hour. I, I want to watch the rest of this television, or not television anymore, but on my iPad, I'm, I, you know, whatever it is. And so yeah. how do you kind of extra, what do you do as a parent? How do you ignore it? So I, I think um, a lot of times parents, cut in to avoid natural consequences for the kid. If I have a teenager that's like, I've said you should do your homework, they said, sure, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it later, and then they fall asleep on their iPad and they don't get their homework done, the next morning I'm not keeping that kid home from school, I'm not bringing in him late, I'm not bringing extra homework that he forgot at home. It's a natural consequence. You get to school, you feel awful. Oh, no, it's embarrassing. I didn't study for the test. Or, you know, I'm getting kicked off the basketball team because I didn't get a good enough grade on my history exam. And those natural consequences will motivate children to improve their behavior without that power struggle. But when parents are pushing, 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 they're micromanaging, the kid knows I don't really have to do it. My mom's going to remind me again later. And when I don't do it, she's going to let me stay home or give me extra time to be alone on the weekend or let me out of something else I should probably do, like practice, and um, I'll do my homework then. And so we are, as parents, we're cutting kids off from feeling the pain of their own consequences. And honestly, like, that's how we learn. You touch a hot pan, it hurts, you don't do it again. So as parents, we need to let that play out 
and back off from that power struggle. Provide a supportive environment. Give a place where a kid can do their homework. And, you know, by all means, give a reminder. But after that, you know what? You're on your own. You don't make it into college, you're going to have to get a job. And after you work for several reels, you might think education is more important and you'll work harder the next time you get there. Right, so the, 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 the sort of the thing you have to think about is, or the thing is that you're saying you have to think about, let your kids feel the pain of their, the pain of their own, the consequences of what their choices or what they're doing. And, and it's really hard, very hard to step back. Is there any example, would you say, or I know there are, but well, then you shouldn't step back back and that you have to intervene. I mean, that, you know, you really can't ignore the behavior. When would sure. that I think when the kid's really in trouble, like they're, um, they're dropping off their activities, they're not engaging in school anymore, they might be depressed or anxious, or there might be other issues that are behind the scenes that are impacting, um, that are causing that behavior, we should not ignore that. We should not ignore our kids when they're in real pain, um, when they're really struggling with something. We should provide help and support. Um, those are things. And then if somebody's doing something dangerous, you know, if our kids are, um, you know, even with young kids, I've seen kids climbing on things that, you know, really are dangerous and parents should be actively involved in um, preventing that danger, either for that kid or for another child or an adult. Um, you know, we can't let someone else be impacted. So if I'm in a restaurant and there's a kid that's screaming and ruining everybody's meal, that kid should not be ignored. They should be taken outside. Then they can be ignored. But, you know, we can't ruin everybody else's experience or we can't put somebody else in danger. Yeah. Well, I, I, uh, another example, uh, I have a, a grandson who's a year and a half and there are certain things that he can and cannot do. I give in to the iPad if you can sometimes, uh, but when he starts to put his finger in the, uh, electric socket, it's no. And that's the end of it. It's really interesting, you know, and it's something as dramatic as that. It's very easy to say no, but then as a parent or as a grandparent, it gets less and less easy to be able, you know, you kind of like, you know, like you say, you're in a restaurant and he's crying or, you know, he doesn't want to, you know, you can't engage him. So you give him the iPad. Um, so I, there are degrees for parents uh, in terms of, I guess, difficulty in being able to ignore it, obviously, depending on what the behavior is, right? Oh, for sure. And the thing is, I'm glad you brought up, um, you know, first of all, as a grandma, you have full rights to spoil your kids. You don't have to necessarily deal with that behavior later on. As parents, we have to be able to say no and have it be no. Um, And, you know, sometimes parents really struggle with being able to say no and follow through. They really have a hard time with the tantrum or the, the incessant whining. Like, they're working hard. They're beaten down. They're exhausted. They just kind of eventually give in. And so sometimes what's helpful to them is I tell parents, you wouldn't let your kid play with the stove. You wouldn't let him run out into traffic. So the way you are, like, no means no in those situations, you have to then transfer that over to other situations. Like, you want to be able to say no and walk away and have that be the end of it. So you have to, in your head, kind of shift and say, like, okay, I already said no, so I have to continue doing that. And just as you would not just give in and let a kid play in fire, you know, you have to say no to the iPad um, after you already said no. But Having said that, I do think that sometimes parents say no when they should have said yes, and then that's why they give in later on. They realize, oh, I didn't really have to say no. So 
I ask parents to think in advance a little bit about their response before just automatically giving a no or a yes and think about it because I think that parents sometimes if they're exhausted and they want to just order a pizza and have a movie night, they should just say yes. You know, you shouldn't fight up against it. Give yourself a break sometimes and say yes. But if you say no, you've got to follow through. It's got to stay no. Yeah, give yourself a break. I think that's that, that's an important yes. phrase. Parents do have to give themselves a break. You're absolutely right. Uh, of course, then there's sometimes a problem between if there are two parents, uh, they don't agree. So that's another issue. Uh, and, yeah. you know, so then, then, you know, that one will say no and one will say, well, it's okay. Then what? Parents who are not on the same page is one of the issues I see most often. They grew up in different homes. They have different ideas about parenting. One may work, you know, out of the house. The other may be home with the kids all day. They have very different perspectives, and it's difficult for them to think the same way about all issues, you know, related to parenting. And honestly, sometimes that's okay. My husband says yes to most things. I say no to most things. In the end, I think it balances out. But when it comes to major areas of discipline, there needs to be some agreement on bedtime, on sweets, on, um, you know, once, once one parent says no, the other parent has to follow suit, even if they didn't agree. They can discuss it later, or they can decide next time to, sit, to handle a situation differently. But it's really not good for the kids or the parents for one to say no, and then the parent to overrule another parent in front of the kids, um, because really that just intensifies the behavior. The kid's like, okay, this is terrific. I have such a game here. I can use one parent against the other parent for the rest of, you know, my childhood and get whatever it is that I want. So I think parents don't have to agree on everything, but there there are a few areas that they need to be on the same page with. And when one says one thing, the other one has to support them, at least in that moment. Yeah, good advice. And I think another piece of this is that you, that very often parents forget about, and um, uh, you emphasize this, that often parents forget to recognize good behavior. They are so stressed out and they're so focused on what you can't do. They don't really reward kids for the good stuff that they do do. And that really is important. Right. So the same concepts apply. So if we provide attention to something and we provide reinforcement for it, it'll continue to happen. So unfortunately, what parents are doing is they're reinforcing all the behaviors they want to go away, the whining and complaining and crying and all of that. But what they're forgetting to do is to reinforce the behaviors they want to see more of. It's just like the squeaky wheel gets the grease. And so instead of, you know, they should really ignore all the behaviors that are, um, you know, annoying or attention-seeking and really focus on their attention on the things they want to see, a child who's listening, a child who's showing good behavior, who's kind to a sibling, who puts away their toys without asking, who eats their dinner, you know, without complaining. Those are the things we really should be spending our time reinforcing instead of giving all our energy to the negative behaviors. And then they'll increase. All the good things will happen more often. Catherine, sometimes I see parents, maybe, I don't know if, I would say that they're millennials or maybe parents really in their early 30s, middle 30s, they are so attentive to their kids and they're so analyzing everything and talking to a two-year-old as if they had the, you know, the I guess the judgment to, to make certain mm-hmm. decisions that they can't and it, it um, and you I usually am seeing that happen in restaurants or in public places and stuff um, sort of elevating them I guess I, I don't see that as necessarily a good thing but can you comment on that? Yeah, I completely agree with you. I mean, the the term helicopter parents 
you know, was kind of a bad word and it was to describe the parents like you're talking about. But honestly, I think almost all parents now are helicoptering to some degree, more or less, because society has kind of set up this system where we're uber involved in our kids' lives. Like, my parents never showed up to a volleyball game. They didn't bring me, like, supplies if I left them at home. You know, I'd have to go to band without my flute. That's just the way it was. It's not that way now. Now if your kid, you know, they go to the principal and say, like, I need to call my mom. I left my flute at home. The principal's going to expect you to bring it. Um, You know, and so we are involved in the classroom in ways our parents weren't, and there's a lot more books about psychology, and there's videos, and there's the Internet, and there's all this advice. And I think parents are very invested in raising their children now, and some of that is a good thing. But I do agree with you. You know, kids will learn by our behavior, not so much our words. And parents really want to explain to their two-year-olds why it's not a good idea for them to climb on the top of the bookcase. The kid doesn't care about what you're saying. It's kind of like in the Peanuts movies with Snoopy, the teacher always used to say, like, wah, 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 wah. That's what the kid is hearing. They're, they're really not taking in that. All they want to know is, can I continue to do it or can I not continue to do it? And they will know by your behavior that they're not allowed to do it. So... You know, whether it's consequence or timeout or losing your attention, they will learn that what they're doing is not going to be productive and they'll stop doing it. So I, I think that some of that explaining and micromanaging, and, and I think that relates to also not letting our kids feel some of their own pain. You know, we're, we're protecting our kids so much, but you know what? Those kids are only home with us for 18 years. And then they go off to college and they're very ill-prepared. I'm a college professor. I can tell you, parents are still calling about grades and getting into graduate school. And I'm thinking, if your kid is having you call for graduate school, they're probably not ready. You know, so, you know, we've got to send them out into the real world. They're going to have to have jobs. They're going to have to pay bills. They're going to have to have consequences in life. And I do think slowly but surely throughout childhood, we need to let them experience those things. Well, that was my next. That's exactly what I was going to talk. You know, we've been talking about elementary school, middle school, high school, but college, it continues. And and I know with uh, my own kids, I would get stuff like come to, you know, three weeks after they'd been in school, there's a parent something or other in college. And I'd look at these things and say, well, <laughs> I thought I'm done with that. What you're, I'm, so you're supposed to be, I mean, that never, you know, you gave the example, it never happened to me in college or certainly not in graduate school. I mean, that was the end. Your parents were finished in terms of, it was up to you, Right. But, but the worst part is that the colleges expect you to be there, and not only that, all the other parents are there. So now you don't go. Your kid is like, oh, my parent is the only one that didn't show up. Yeah, I, right. The expectation is that they have to be there, although I have to tell you I never did go. <laughs> they were <laughs> Good for to, you. Yeah, and as you say, if you can't manage this on your own, you shouldn't be in college, and you certainly shouldn't be in graduate school if you can't make those decisions. But you're right. Grades, sports, you're supposed to even the expectations – if your kid is on a sports team in college, um, that you're supposed to go and, and watch them play the sports like you did in high school. If, if it's, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Parents so, are utterly uh, invested in their kid's success on all levels. Yeah. Well, as you said, I'm, I'm curious. We, only, we don't have that much time left. But you, So you're a professor. Where are you a professor? Um, I teach at Brandman University in California. All right. So, you know, give us some more examples of, of, of the college you're saying, like kid, parents are invested in or calling you about their kids' grades when they're in college. Um, well, right now at Brandon, I'm teaching adults. So I have to say um, I'm not getting any of that at this point. But when I was the admissions director for a social work program and I, know I worked at another college in New York, uh, 
I would get all kinds of parent calls, either about a grade, about my daughter can't make it to class, um, she isn't sure she's going to be able to get the recommendation in for the master's program on time. I've had parents call and pretend they were the children and start talking to me, and in the middle of saying, you know, oh, I'm not sure of this, or I, they would start saying my daughter, my daughter, and I'm thinking, okay. This is ridiculous. So, and I think college professors, admissions directors, deans, I mean, there's a, a dean from Stanford who has been very outspoken about this. They'll all tell you the same thing, that, that kids run to their parents and then parents intervene. Instead of the parents turning the kid around and saying, if you have a problem with your grade, talk to your teacher. In fact, it happened to my daughter in her gym class this year. She was in eighth grade, and she wanted me to talk to the gym teacher. And I'm like, if you have a problem, you're going to need to solve this. You're going to need to go to the gym teacher and advocate for yourself. I'm not doing it for you. I'll practice with you. I'll tell you what I think you should say, but you're going to have to do it. And she did, and she it worked out for her. And now I think she'll do it again in the future. So I think in colleges, um, you know, parents have to be strong and put it the the effort back on the kid and say, you know what, this is, this is on you. I'll help you, but you've got to do it. Yeah. Well, I think that's why you, your book is so important because you really have to, you know, it's not going to start in college if you've been doing this for the past 18 years being so, uh, you know, in, interjected in your kids' lives and not allowing them to make their own choices. So you really do have to start when they're young. And then by the time they get to be 18, they are prepared to make their own choices and to I say suffer suffer the consequences of whatever their choices are or experience the consequences. So um, start from the beginning. Yeah, I think that as kids grow, little by little, we have to give them more independence. We have to give them more opportunities to feel their own consequences. You know, I mean, it's very hard as a parent to let go, but we have to do it. We have to let them cook their own meals, even if there's a chance that they'll burn something. You know, we have to let them drive the car, and we have to let them, you know, advocate for themselves, even if they don't, they're not as successful as if I was going to advocate for them. We have to build up those skills little by little by little so that we send them out prepared. Yeah, I, I, and this is, we have a couple minutes left, but I used to say, I know to my own kids, to my own boys, well, if there were, I know how to do this. I've had the experience. You don't, so you need to do it. I'm, I'm very capable of doing some, you know, sixth grade work or seventh, whatever I have to do. I've been through it, and um, but now it's your turn. So, I mean, that was part of the advice. But, okay, so, so give us, you know, uh, well, I want to, the title of your book again um, is, um Ignore it, how selectively looking the other way can decrease behavioral problems and increase parenting satisfaction. And uh, I've been talking to Catherine Perlman, LCSW, PhD, leading parent expert. What website can we go to so we can get more information about your book, what you're doing? Um, sure. Uh, you can find me uh, on, at thefamilycoach.com and on Facebook and Twitter, I'm The Family Coach. Family coach, great. Well, it's been great talking to you today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for being on the show, Catherine. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. 
The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 